word, turn to Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 12 verses of the chapter. Message we know and know well. Maybe too well. Maybe we miss sometimes the points of what the gospel writer is trying to communicate. Matthew chapter 2, I'll begin reading verse 1, reading through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. As familiar as it may be, let's hear it again for the first time. This, the word given for you, even this day. Matthew 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider it this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we come in humble expectation that this is not a mere exercise in futility, that you who have ordained the foolishness of preaching would use this time as a demonstration of the Spirit of the living God who penned these words to press it upon the hearts and minds of men. And so we, like those who have gone before us, proclaim and pray, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord. We are listening. Help us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. I think it is quite safe to say, and I don't think I have to go out on any kind of a limb to say this, that in the world today, especially today, but in all days since the fall, there are really just two kinds of people. There are those who oppose Christ. Their whole entire life is wrapped up that way from the words they say to the things that they think to the things that they write to their behavior to all of it. It's uh, 
demonstration of opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. They may not be aware of it, but they really have no interest in serving him or even worshiping him. They don't care to obey him, and when confronted of their need for him, they reject it and further oppose the terms of the gospel and that which Jesus Christ came to bring. Thankfully, there is another group of people, those who adore him. Can't make it one day without him. Can't think of living in this world without the knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ who came both as a baby but came to die as the Savior of the world. Their whole life is framed, as it were, with an aroma of awe, majesty for Christ. They love Him, they seek to serve Him in all areas of life, they believe Him, walk with Him, they give all, and they give their all to worship Him. The question this morning is really simple. Born right out of this text, really born in comparison to two different kinds of people from Herod the fox, the rascal, the enemy of Jesus, and the wise men who were willing to do just about anything to come see him. The question is this, brothers and sisters, which one are you? I know you're quickly going to say, you're, you're going to say, well, we're here, aren't we? Mm-hmm, you are. We, we profess the, the name of Christ, don't we? Yes. Let me change the question. Because I know the tendency of man's heart is to deceive oneself. Not it right that, James did. Let me change the question. Who do you adore? Is it yourself? Maybe. You love the Savior and long to obey Him. That means you bring all matters of life in subjection to Him, your priorities, your desires. You have a burning passion to worship the Lord on this, His day. Because long before there was ever this thing called Christmas, there was the Lord's Day. Genesis 2. Excuse me. Yes, 2. A day set apart as a public expression of His worship. Do you want to be here? Would you rather be somewhere else right now? Just this morning, I was talking with somebody close to me, actually, who is unable to go to church because their churches are closed. Because why? Because the church has felt that their families need to spend more time together. And so they canceled public worship. I got to tell you, I think the throne room of heaven probably shook. Shook. 84% of evangelical churches today Pastors have canceled worship on the day that God has ordered it to be done. Why? 
pragmatism, convenience. I'll show up if I feel like it, but I got other things to do. You just don't understand. No, the problem isn't any of those issues. The problem is their hearts are far from the Lord. That's the problem. They are like Herod. They don't care to worship the true God of heaven. They go through the motions, and that's all they do. And they do that on June 5th. May this church never be that way. Who do you adore? And why are you here? I pray you have no idea. I pray from my own soul that I would be here for the right reasons to adore the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I know the temptations of thinking of other things like vacation and a few hours. I pray for your soul that you would not be like Herod, but you would be like the wise men of this text. You will do anything. You will love the Savior in every area of life, so much so that there's nothing that's going to prevent you from honoring Him. The text before us falls in line with the events, of course, of the birth of Christ. It is many days, really, after the very events that we know all too well. The events that led even to the arrival of Christ. The parents have moved into a house. And now the Spirit of God is highlighting to us an aspect and priority that should be part and parcel of all those that love the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it through the narrative. He weaves it through the expression both of the actions and behavior of Herod, the king, and the wise men of which we do not know how many there actually were that came, by the way. We, woven through this narrative, is an aspect of worship and adoration that should mark the child of God. We see in this text enemies of the king, and we see those who adore him. As we work through these 12 verses, You must regularly ask yourself, which one am I? Which one? With that said, I want to show you the characteristics of those who oppose the king and the qualities of those who love the king and seek to worship him with their whole life. I want to show you that the Spirit is teaching us many things in this text, but certainly teaching us this, the various characteristics of those who oppose the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the qualities of those who love the King and seek to worship Him with their whole life. Two points as we consider these 12 verses. Simple points, really, you probably can guess them. Of course, you could probably read them. They're in your bulletin, too. First, we'll consider those that oppose Christ. We're just going to get that out of the way right up front. And then we're going to consider those that adore Christ. I hope that's you. Those that oppose Christ, the setting is quite clear. It is, of course, many days removed from the birth of Christ. Matthew has already given us the details regarding the birth and 
chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. There's a period of time that now jumps from the end of the the concluding remarks of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Here he's highlighting for us events that transpire after the birth. He tells us now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Matthew has gone out of his way to tell us that this birth would occur and has occurred in the city of David. An interesting connection, of course, that he is establishing, trying to bring the reader to understand Because as he makes reference to David, he is making reference to the most popular, probably the most known king in all of Israel's history. Drawing itself even further down to the king, the one who was in the line of David, the one who was born in the city of David. In contrast, in stark contrast to this earthly king, that is mentioned all over this passage, Herod. Matthew is establishing a contrast between two kings. Herod the king, who was appointed by Rome, was at best a half-Jew. But you didn't know that. A half-Jew. This is to say that he really wasn't really well-liked by the real Jews, In fact, he wasn't really well-liked at all. He's a tyrant and a wicked ruler. According to contemporary historians, Herod the Great is perhaps the only figure in ancient Jewish history who has been loathed equally by Jewish and Christian posterity. How'd you like to be him? No friends in the world. Depicted by both Jews and Christians as a tyrant and bloodthirsty ruler, the study of Herod's reign includes polarizing opinions on the man himself. Modern critics have described him as the evil genius of the Judean nation. I'd like that on your tombstone. And as one who would be prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Now, if you don't see that in these 12 verses, then you're not reading Cunning, deception, outright lies to advance his throne, to advance his kingdom, to advance himself. It's safe to say, I think, not going out on any kind of a limb here, he doesn't like Jesus very much and he's really a hater of God. He's evil. In every way one can be. Herod. But in contrast to the one who is the true king, born in the city of David, in the line of the best king, David, is Jesus the king. The narrative begins with the following words from the wise men. Where is he that is born, not servant of the Jews, not shepherd of the Jews, although that's true, king? Of the Jews. Further advancing the argument that I'm making that Matthew wants to see us to see a contrast between two groups of people, two kinds of people, two kings.
We're going to see that as born king of the Jews, they asked. The construction is not one of anticipation, but actualization. He was not born to be the king. Literally, it is rendered and should be rendered, he that is king. Now imagine you're Herod, and you're not a nice person. You're actually very evil. And you hear that. Your throne is threatened, you think. Indeed, problems are coming, and you'll do just about anything to protect your own interests. Contrary to this, Herod, this earthly king established by Rome, established as an evil, wicked tyrant, this one who is king, serves. We ever see that is born king of the Jews. This king is a servant. Not like the king of the, the reign of Herod. Bow, kneel, go, stay, jump, sit. No. Jesus serves people. How many accounts do I need to read? How many examples must I give you in the Gospels to show that Jesus Christ, though the King, the King, a King, serves people? He served you. He's still doing that too, by the way. He hasn't stopped. He serves you even when you disobey Him. He serves you when you dishonor Him. He serves you when you make Him saddened, as it were. When you grieve him, he still serves you. You can't out-grieve his service. His disciples grieved him at times. His people do. You do. I do. Herod would kill you for dishonoring him. He would take your life. That's not what your Savior does. He keeps serving pleading for you, ministering for you, interceding on your behalf. He doesn't quit. He serves. Second, he cares. What did he do? How did he show that? Throughout his entire ministry, this king who got off his throne, who came down and stooped with the lowliest of people, the sick of the world. The leper, he touches. The blind, he gives sight. The dead, he raises He serves, he cares, he has compassion, third, on sinful people. Herod could care less. I always say that wrong. He couldn't care less about you or your sin. Compassion? No. No compassion from him but an infinite measure of it from Christ. Fourth, he labors to bring the good news of the gospel to sinners. Herod sought to stop it from coming. Fifth, he lived to serve the will of his father. Herod served to, live, to serve his own will. This is the Lord of glory, the king, serving the will of his own father, Sixth, he gave his life. 
willingly. The baby that was born, visited, died. Gave his life a ransom for many. Herod wouldn't give himself for anybody. The parallel that Matthew is drawing on here is not uncommon to us. It's really an Old Testament story woven into the New Testament fabric of the Bible. That story is found in the opening lines and opening pages of the book of Exodus. The parallel between King Pharaoh, who rose to power and did not know Joseph, who sought to slay this one he heard of, this mediator, this redeemer that was going to come. And you know the story, don't you? Moses, the type of mediator, waging war against the king of Egypt, doing it under the hand and power of the God of heaven. The parallels of the death of the firstborn and all that is pointing to ultimately what we have here in this narrative is that constant war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Herod representing the seed of the serpent, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Not just any seed this time, the seed. The one prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the one promised in the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, a wicked king contrasted with a serving king, a caring king, a compassionate king, one who labors to bring the hope of the gospel to you, king, one who served his will of his father, king, a king who laid down his life for people who are like you and me. This is all the setting. You're thinking, man, we're never going home today. Maybe not. What we know about this king, this Herod, this subverter of God's people, his actions, the text tells us he was troubled. He was troubled by the news of this pronounced king. Herod was made king by the Romans, but this king was born, was made king by God. Why was he troubled? Why would you be troubled? I don't think you have to be all that smart to figure out why Herod is a little bit upset. Beyond upset, it's almost as though he is insane. He's troubled because he's an arrogant man. He's a despot. He was the center of his universe. He was afraid. He was a threat to his throne. But really, he's troubled because he was an enemy. And he is pictured in this narrative by Matthew as a threat to the very Savior himself. We see that there at the very end of the narrative when the wise men are warned not to return to Herod. Why should they be warned if Herod was legitimate? Because he wasn't legitimate. He was an ultimate threat to the Savior. And had they done what they were told to do and returned back to him to tell him where they could find, where he might find Christ, that he might go, quote unquote, worship him, not, he would have gone and killed them. He was a despot. He was one of motivated by conspiracies. There are two events in the text that show that Herod was seeking to figure out what the wise men were talking about when they asked the question, where is he 
king of the Jews. What does he do? Well, verse 3 tells us, or verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, in other words, assembling all the theologians in the city, all the brains, all the scholars. He assembles them. Why? To inquire where the Christ was to be born. That is, he appealed inside the church. Interesting. He appeals inside the church to secure the location, to establish it. The answer of this band of people, a group, though part of the visible church, that went to synagogue. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. How do we know that? Because they actually speak of it. They quote, they told him, verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Well, how do they know that? Well, they know their Bible. A lot of liberals know their Bible, by the way. They don't know the Bible. These are members of the church. They're visible. I can see them. They can see each other. They're you, maybe. They didn't believe. They played along with this, the intentions of this madman, madman. He secretly then moves to meet with these wise men. Why? Why does he want to do that? Why does Herod want to do that? Seems natural. After getting his information from these geniuses, he secretly meets with the wise men to do what? To deceive them, to conspire against Christ. He's disingenuous in his desire to worship. He has no intention of doing so. He tells them to report back. If we're not careful, we can come into this place every Lord's Day and we can be disingenuous in our behavior. Children, you're more prone to this than maybe adults, but I think adults too. You're here because you have to be. Your mom and dad dragged you here after all. I know, I used to sit there. I was your age once. If you asked me why I was in church, probably that would have been the first answer I would have gave. Maybe not the last answer, but it would have been the, one of the first. Well, I, I had to be here. Well, my Dad said get in the car, and I'm okay. It was better than a beating. Disingenuous. I sat there like a hard-headed dope, doing my job, after all. Stayed out of the trouble. Not grounded this week. Disingenuous. Heart far from God, didn't care. That's Herod. He didn't want to worship. He wants to destroy. But he paints himself to look so pretty. Everything's grand. Hey, wise men, you tell me. I'm, I'm excited like you. Can't wait. You come back and tell me. I'm kind of busy doing the king thing here, but you guys go do your thing, and then you come back and tell me, and then I'm going to join in with some other people. We're going to go have a big praise and worship time. That was his attitude. Right. We know better. What do you think the wise men knew? Put yourself in their shoes when they hear this. They're, they're, they might even be secretly celebrating the fact that this king, who is known to be a despot and a tyrant, uh, maybe he's changing. They don't know they're being faked out. But they were. His attitude was one of anger, deceit, disingenuous. He was a murderer.
There's some issues that come out of this, I think, that apply directly to the life of the church. In this portion of the narrative, we have highlighted, I think, some clear principles that are part and parcel of those who oppose Christ. This is where you must really listen. The rest was nice. It was interesting information. Here's the application. Here's the parts where I sometimes tell my wife before I preach a sermon, it's not going to make me any friends. This is that part. These items can be grouped in three areas. First are those that refuse to believe. Outside the church, they are easy to figure out. They don't usually bother us all that much either. The skeptics, the agnostics, the atheists, these are the ones who deny any need of Christ in the gospel. Herod is really a living example and was called the fox by the Lord. The ones inside the church are a little more of a mystery. Represented by the scribes, you know, the experts, the scholars that he calls together here to seek information. The ones who know the Bible, apparently. The visible church, they make a profession of faith. They go before the elders. They say, yes, I love Jesus, and and I take the five membership vows. And we, as men and only men, do the best we can to ascertain the spiritual well-being of the individual in front of us. But being only men, we make mistakes. These people make this profession like these guys here. They are not really united to Christ. Their fruit is absent. There is nothing. They sit in the pew each week, yet they do not believe. They may be adults. They may be children. Do you believe? Maybe you're like the scribes who know and quote the Scriptures, but you're really... I could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. I'm good. I got fire insurance. You know, I walked that aisle someday, and I'm, I'm going to heaven. Everything's grand. Learn more about Jesus? No, thank you. Attend prayer meeting? I, only if I absolutely have to. Pastor Bill bothers me enough. Guilts me into it. Read my Bible? Pray together as a family. How can one rightly say they adore Christ and not commit themselves to these kinds of things? No, I would suggest that you should think that perhaps there's a problem. The scribes made great professions, but they were all empty and void. You know, these guys right here in this passage... They drove the nails through the hands of the Savior. It's this group, the visible church, that killed him. They refuse to believe. They refuse to worship because they do not believe, of course. They don't worship the Savior. Outside the church, they consider what we're doing every week kind of pointless. Sadly, inside the church, there are some sitting right here, Right now, in this room, I'm not a mind reader, but, well, it's not my first rodeo. That have other things they'd rather be doing. 
I mean, maybe you thought maybe secretly that I would have brain trauma this week and convince the others to cancel church. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we're not closing. This is where we should be. Most important thing you'll ever do all week. The world thinks we're dumb, wasting our time, could be doing other things. And inside the church it happens, we show up, we know the hymns, we sing them, sort of. They memorize, you memorize the Bible, maybe, you know, maybe you even went to seminary. I can only think of one person in the room that's done that, and that would be me. There's no guarantees in that either, by the way. Maybe they're the pastor. They give lip service to worship, but denigrate the day of worship. There's no reverence, no adoration, just an activity. It's all it is. The scribes and the Pharisees were taken to task for their vain worship. Jesus himself. Not only did they not believe him, when they went to worship him, it was just a show. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says that to them. You're just like what Isaiah said. You're just going to use your lips. But you know your heart is somewhere else. Your mind is somewhere else. You don't really love me. You don't adore me. That's what he tells them. Third, I know you're thinking, this is not supposed to be so discouraging. Well, I'm sorry. They refuse to obey outside the church. Those people are obvious to figure out. Just look around. The unregenerate will not, and they don't obey God. None of us should be shocked by that truth. That's obvious. So what happens when sinners get air and oxygen? They sin. The fruit of their lives is foolishness, like Herod, who sought counsel and then labored to undermine the very work of the Savior. They, too, also undermine the work of God. All of their efforts is one of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's what Paul said. We should never be surprised by that. I'll tell you where we should be surprised when it happens right here in this room. There's nothing more contrary to saying, yes, Lord, or saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, but. That's a contradiction. The people that make profession of faith, they like the scribes, they, they know the Bible, they, but they don't do what it says. Eh, that's just his opinion. They hear it. They don't act on it. There are people like that everywhere. The church is all over America. They don't live a life of self-denial. They're seeking their own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. They are mere professors of religion and faith, but they do not know Christ. And brothers and sisters, worst, he doesn't know them. These are those that oppose Jesus. I know you feel so great now. Is that you? Are you part of the scribes and the Pharisees that know the Bible but don't do what it says? Worship's a mere show. You're like Herod. Oh, I want to worship. I'm coming. It's the Lord's day. And you get here and, is he done yet? 
What about those that adore him? They're represented, of course, by these wise men. And they weren't wise merely because they went and sought the Christ child. That certainly was a wise act, but we don't actually know why they're called that, truthfully. You listen to that stuff you get on the Internet that tries to explain these things, and you'll hear that kind of an explanation. They were the wise men because it was wiser than to go seek Jesus. Okay, great. Sure, okay. We don't really know. We don't know who they are, their identity. These wise men are not people endowed with wisdom in general. But as some scholars believe, they are simply students of the stars. Kind of fits, doesn't it, with the whole idea of the star leading them? Okay. But they saw this star, the text tells us. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Now, I'm curious. As you read your Bible, you should ask these kinds of questions. How was it that they would know that? How is it that they know it was was his star and it was communicating this message? I mean, was it speaking to them? It was carrying one of those things you see on the plane. You know, what do they call those things where the plane's going by and then it's got the big message on the other side of it? You know what I'm talking about, just because I don't know what it is. You know what I'm talking about. That's what it had. That star was, yeah, sure. No, it was a star, probably an ordinary star in the sky. But somehow they knew. They knew that it was communicating something about the Messiah. Apparently the news had been spread around through prophecies, perhaps by these people that I've already talked about, the visible church, prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. We don't know. We know it was a supernatural act. We know it's a miraculous act. We know something's going on here that transcends human thinking. We know it's all true, too. And what about this star, children? You ever asked yourself, what what, what is this star? What what does it have to do with it? You go out in your yard. Some of you have a beautiful view of the sky because you live so far away from the city that you can't know light pollution. It's wonderful. Uh, And you see many stars. What about it? What about the star that they reference here, these ones that are seeking to worship Christ? Well, there's many opinions as to this. I'll just give you six, and I'll do it very quickly. Some argue that it was a genuine star in the sense of which the sun is also a star, one of extraordinary brilliance. Some will argue that it's the planet, was the planet Jupiter, it's often associated in those days with birth of kings, and therefore, therefore it's called, you guessed it, the king planet. Never mind the fact that it's also the biggest planet, so I don't know if there's a connection. Third, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the sign of the fish. Now, you've seen that sign. Maybe. I'm not suggesting any of these are right. I'm just giving you what people generally think. 
Sermons should be instructive at times, and maybe this is one of those times. Fourth, perhaps it was a comment acting erratically. Okay. Fifth, it may have just been a simple luminary hanging low in the sky, or six, it could have been the star of destiny, of hope, one's guiding star within the heart. Okay, we can pretty much rule that one out. This is a physical star. It's one that's real. And through this catalog of events, uh, we, we can't draw any real hard and fast conclusions. There are many questions related to the identity of the wise men, where they came from, other than uh, what it tells us, men from the east. Well, that, that could be anywhere. But we do know this. And what we don't and aren't left to wonder by Matthew in this text is their purpose for coming. You may have billions of questions as to their origin and to the star, and that's all fine and great, and that's what scholars like to do because they've got nothing else to do all day long. And so get online and read it all to your heart's content. But don't miss this. The purpose of the wise men coming was... There it is, at the end of verse 2, after Matthew gives us all this little information, not information, the purpose was that they might worship Him. They might worship Him. That's what Herod said. They say the same thing, but there's a difference, isn't there? They traveled a great distance. They went through great struggle. It wasn't like they jumped in their... SUV and drove to church that day. Because I know that's such a hardship for us to drive 15 minutes to worship. No, no. They were willing to move heaven and earth if necessary. They were even willing to go before this despot, the king, that they might find out where he is. They were willing to do whatever was necessary that they might fulfill the purpose in which they traveled, and that was to worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, your Lord, your Savior. Is that your attitude? The wise men are certainly part of the story. Jehovah himself is also one of the actors in this event. You might wonder, well, how is he there? His name's not even mentioned. You're right, it's not. But there are two clear reasons why Jehovah is part and parcel of the story. First, it's because of the Spirit of God that the wise men were even led to Christ in the first place. How do I know that? Well, because that star, whatever the origin guided them precisely to where he was. The text tells us as much. It comes, the star uh, it, it lands, rests right over the place where the child was, verse 9. The means that God used to bring them to worship Christ was the star. To guide them on their way. Remind you of a story in the Old Testament, maybe. As the people of Israel, redeemed of the Lord, were brought out of Egypt, what did God give to them? A pillar of fire and cloud that might lead them where? Uh, To Sinai, that they might do what there? Uh, Worship Him. 
God often uses means, in this case a supernatural one. It's means nonetheless that Jehovah uses to lead people to worship Him. Mere man cannot and will not come to worship this child, this God, this Savior. Something must happen to them. These men had their eyes opened. However it is they heard, whatever the star may have been, their eyes were opened and their chest burned with zeal and delight that they might worship the King of Kings, the one who is the King of the Jews. That ought to be our action, even our attitude. And so what are the actions of the wise men without beating a dead horse? They come with great worship and adoration of He who is the divine Logos, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When they came into the house, the text tells us how smart do you have to be They saw the child, verse 11, and they fell down and worshipped him. It's a baby. Now, I've goo-goo-ga-ga'd over babies. Okay, I know you don't believe that. It's true, I have. I just do it secretly so no one knows. It's a baby. Oh, Not very big. They're in awe. They're 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 dumbstruck. They can't speak. They fall down. They worship him. He hasn't done anything yet. But they know who he is. They know his person. They know enough. Brothers and sisters, you have more knowledge than they ever had when they walked into that house that day, and some of you don't even care. They were in awe of the Lord. They gave gifts, of course. This is where we get the idea of three wise men, by the way, but don't bank on that. I personally think it was 500 wise men because that just sounds like a better number. And boy, I tell you, the singing must have been tremendous. Okay, that was free. The issues here, like the issues of those who would not believe, are the same. There are those who are willing to believe. They hear the good news of the gospel and they respond. They are willing to acknowledge their sin and their misery. They know they're a creature of dust. Without God, they're ruined, they're hopeless. You said that in your vows. Without Christ, save in His sovereign mercy, you stand in, as people with no hope. They acknowledge that misery, and they, they come to Christ. They flee to Him. They hear the call to Savior. Rest on Him alone. They're willing to worship like the wise men. They love the day of worship. 
Nothing's going to prevent them from getting to the Christ child. And how prone we are to make excuses for why we will not honor this day as God has told us. To worship Him. To see all the benefits that there are in it and for it, created and given for you, by the way. They are willing to worship. They come hungry to hear from the king. They are in awe of him and all that he does for pitiful sinners. There is a reverence in the worship of the king. They're willing to obey the king. How do I know that from the text? They were told in a dream, don't go back to that fox, that knucklehead, that that, that lying, conniving turkey. You go somewhere else. And they did. They heard a very short sermon. And they obeyed. We too, as those who want to worship Him, we strive to know what Christ has commanded. We strive to listen when He speaks in the preaching of the Word. Not mere hearers, but doers also. We started with a question. What's the answer? What group are you in? Pastor Bill, I, I want to be in the group that loves Jesus and I want to worship him, but I blow it all the time. You know, join the club. I stand up here every Lord's Day and I blow it all the time. It's a lifelong battle. It's a siege. It's war. But the desire's there. Let it grow. Nourish it. Nurture it. And it will. Maybe you're an enemy. Disguised, perhaps. You're on the membership rules. I got to tell you, those membership rules won't get you into heaven. Just telling you that. God, Christ isn't going to look at them. He's got one himself. But you don't want to be here. You don't care. You're not really interested in obeying. The saddest part about it is you just don't even care to care. That's frightening. Your soul's in peril. You adore him, he who is the Lord of glory. The wise men adored the baby. You got more, way more, much more. There's no greater question facing you today than this question. Camper Yin, Herod and his ilk, and the wise men, and the host and tribe of the invisible church that loves and adores he who was born a baby, born to die for sinners. You must decide right now. I know you're thinking, well, I don't have to. Oh, yes, you do, because you will. Because a no decision is still a decision. You must decide. You're either for him or against him. 
To wait is to oppose him. Don't be like Herod. Don't. Don't think you can go through your days like him. And the God of heaven doesn't see it. No, no, be like the wise men. Plead for more grace and help and strength of the Spirit to adore and worship the Lord who is all glorious. As woes as those who made it a priority to adore Him, worship Him. You won't be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. For He who came as a baby died as a man, gave his life a ransom for your sin, but lives evermore for you to not only intercede for you and mediate on your behalf, but to secure a place for you of which there will be never again the struggle between whether I adore Christ or don't. There will only be pure, unadulterated worship the one who came and lives you be like the wise men and you ask for more grace more grace O lord that i might love him and worship him amen our father we thank you for your word and we confess to you that we sometimes think we're in the camp of Herod. We don't always want to be here. Father, we confess that to you. And so help our attitude. Change our disposition. Give us your grace. Help us to do what you've told us. We are so weak and pitiful. But you are glorious and mighty. And so we ask that you'd grant us the grace we need to turn from our slumber and to embrace you, our Lord, our King, who lives evermore to help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.